Hi there, I'm Alistair Madden and you're listening to Season 4, Episode 13 of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. In this episode, we looked at Monaco's prestigious youth academy, Silvio Berlusconi's buoyant Monza project, Schalke's Rookrunder resurrection and Villarreal's post-Emery struggles. We looked at all of those topics and so much more in our usual detailed way. Do check out the show notes for a comprehensive overview of what we discussed and when during the episode. As always, this episode is produced in partnership with Freelance Football Ops. If any of our listeners are freelancing in football, you may be interested in signing up to Freelance Football Ops subscription-based newsletter. They find jobs which cover writing, design, video, audio and generally anything in football media every week. For more info, visit FreelanceFootballOps.com or follow at FFOps on Twitter. Right, on now with the episode. Hopefully you're all staying safe. Hopefully you're all staying well. Enjoy. Michael Jones and I spent Saturday afternoon enjoying a few pints together at the Beach Inn in Charlton. I don't know if any of our listeners frequent the Beach Inn in Charlton, but it's a smashing little pub. And we were also greeted to some chat from the West Edsbury and Charlton fans. They crashed out heartbreakingly from the FA Vaz with a defeat against Ascot. I think it was on penalties. Uh, so, yeah, quite an enjoyable Saturday afternoon. Michael Jones, have you recovered from those pints of neck oil or are you still somewhat worse for wear? No, I've recovered okay. I spended a lot of the rest of the weekend at Ikea and moving, so that was certainly the craziest part of my weekend. But, yeah, terrible scenes. It's great West Disbury and Shorten get a mention on the podcast as well. I covered them for work last week and it's a, a bit like Dulwich Hamlet or other clubs sort of of that ilk, a bit of a sort of middle class fan base but yeah do check them out, the FA Trophy journey's over but I'm sure it's not the last um, people here of them if they have already Absolutely yeah well unfortunately we don't cover West Edsbury and Chilton on the podcast but I'm sure there'll be a podcast out there which which does and if there is one then please do send it on to us, listeners quite keen to find out more about about the club having spoken to some of their fans on Saturday afternoon. Rudy Barlow, I don't think Spain has uh, a West Edsbury and Charlton to offer, or for that matter, a beach in, but hopefully your weekend was still rather enjoyable. Yeah, it was good. I was back on the football pitch for the first time since I've been uh, in Spain, so that was good. I think I nearly came down with heat stroke because uh, it was only about 22 degrees. But I tell you what, when that sun starts beating down on you, uh, it really does get to your head. So uh, I managed to just about stay on my feet um, and didn't seem to upset anyone or break anyone's leg first time around. So that's always a plus. Okay, well, if you come away with any ridiculously hot takes (laughs) on the podcast this evening, then I'll know just to attribute it to, yeah, delayed onset heat stroke. Okay, well... (laughs) We will, we will come to Spanish football in due course, Barlow, but I think before we cover that particular part of European football, we should probably turn our attention firstly to German football and look in particular at Schalke, who have enjoyed a resurrection of sorts, haven't they, Barlow? Yeah, in Germany, as you say, Schalke found themselves rooted to the bottom of the Bundesliga table with just two wins from their opening 15 matches when the league paused in mid-November for the World Cup. Fast forward four months and, under the guidance of Thomas Reis, the seven times champions of Germany appear to have turned a corner. A run of seven games unbeaten in the league has lifted the club off the bottom of the table for the first time since late October and further invigorated an already captivating relegation battle. What factors have enabled this apparent turnaround at the Feltins Arena? And how would you now rate the club's chances of survival after that kind of comeback, Ali? Yeah, Barlow, I think I was probably guilty of writing Schalke off as a lost cause, at least under Frank Kramer. They were so poor defensively, leaking so many goals, so routinely carved open. Going forward as well, they were struggling to create quality chances, they were struggling to score goals and at the halfway point in the season, no team had conceded more and no team had scored 
fewer goals than Schalke. So quite frankly, they seemed doomed. And yet, somehow, they've managed to haul themselves back into contention to beat the drop. Just to give you an overview of the current landscape down at the wrong end of the table with 10 games to play. We have Hoffenheim in 18th on 19 points, Schalke and Stuttgart in 17th and 16th respectively on 20 points. Hertha Berlin are on 21 points in 15th place and Bochum are in 14th on 22 points. So three points separating five teams with the bottom two, of course, going down automatically and the club in 16th at the end of the season facing a relegation playoff against the third-place team from the second tier. Now, I briefly mentioned Frank Kramer earlier and he was ultimately replaced by Thomas Rice at the end of October. Rice formally managed fellow relegation battles, Bochum, and not too long ago he had essentially pledged his allegiance to Bochum, given the impression he would never leave and seeing how much Bochum meant to him, all the birthday card nonsense you might see, a bit like Brendan Rodgers when he was at Celtic, the sorts of things that he was saying at Parkhead. Well, Thomas Rice was saying similar things at Bochum. Within months of making those comments, he was gone, believe it or not, and he eventually found himself in the dugout at the Veltins Arena. So that storyline added some extra spice to Schalke's recent visit to Bochum, which saw Schalke come away with a huge 2-0 win in what was a quintessential relegation six-pointer. So that win, coupled with the three points Schalke picked up the week prior at home to Stuttgart, seems to have given the club some real momentum. Now, I mentioned how Schalke were leaking goals at one end and struggling to create chances at the other end in the first half of the season. Rice seems to have gone about addressing those issues in turn, focusing firstly on the team's porous backline. In February, they registered four consecutive clean sheets against Köln, Gladbach, Wolfsburg and Union Berlin. Rice then seems to have turned his attention to addressing the team's lack of output at the other end, with the club scoring six goals in their next three encounters, picking up seven points in the process. Now, the point picked up last weekend against Dortmund in yet another pulsating Riviera derby. That was the 100th edition of that particular derby. That was a mark of the progress that Schalke have made since the post-winter break resumption. Twice they went behind, but twice they bounced back to claim what was ultimately a fully deserved point. And under Rice, Schalke seemed to be playing with greater perseverance, greater resilience, greater mental strength. And those qualities were all on evidence in that draw against Dortmund. Just as an aside as well, the atmosphere in the Belton's arena was magnificent. The 61,000 or so fans adding an almost tangible energy to the game. Now, veteran goalkeeper Ralph Farman who you may remember had a, an unforgettable spell on loan at Norwich. He played a crucial role in that draw with Dortmund producing a string of fine saves. He gave an interview to the official Bundesliga website recently about his own performances and the team's performance on the whole. One quote in particular stood out to me when he spoke about the team becoming a unit. Farman said, you can see and sense that everyone is there for each other. Even the guys coming on are itching to get on the pitch. They leave their hearts out there. I think you can sense that not just the 11 playing, the 18 in the matchday squad are all 30 in the squad, including those not involved. The whole stadium and entire region can sense it. Now, the last part of that quote, Barlow, is particularly noteworthy. For a few years it had felt like there was a real disconnect, a palpable disconnect, if you like, between the players and the supporters. But the recent run of form really seems to have contributed to the re-establishment of a sort of warmer relationship between the two groups. Now, let's not forget, Schalke are one of the best supported clubs in Germany and the region, famous for its coal mining, is fiercely proud of its club. And indeed, only Bayern actually have more members uh, than Schalke when it comes to Bundesliga clubs. I think Schalke have something like 161,000 members. So there is real potential there for you know a, a huge club, which Schalke are, uh, to, to flourish on, on the basis of their support. Anyway, the noise when Schalke scored both of their goals against Dortmund was testament to the backing with which the fans are willing to provide the club. It was really quite spine-tingling, actually. So do check out the highlights, even if just to hear the noise when Schalke score 
both of their goals. Now, if Rice can continue to get the fans on board again after a difficult period in the club's history, he'll almost certainly be on to a winner, at least in relative terms compared to what has gone before in recent years. Thomas Rice spoke to DW in the aftermath of the draw with Dortmund and he spoke of the team's desire to be present in the box and how it's hard to explain, but sometimes things just start to work. What is clear is that there's a real focus on getting the ball out wide quickly and then whipping crosses into the box. Both their goals against Dortmund came from crosses, as did both of the goals in Schalke's win over Stuttgart. Just looking at key players when it comes to the, the personnel, if you like, the arrival of Moritz Jens on loan from Lyon explains in part Schalke's newfound defensive stability, in relative terms anyway. The 23-year-old has been a standout at the back alongside former Southampton defender Maya Yoshida, who listeners will no doubt remember from his time in the English top flight. Coming back to Jens, it didn't really work out for him at Parkhead, but he does seem to be thriving in Gelsenkirchen. Elsewhere, 23-year-old Rodrigo Salazar is a real talent albeit not the most consistent of players. He's only provided one goal and two assists this season, but he is one of those players who gets the crowd up off their seats and gives them something to get excited about. He sits in the 86th percentile for successful take-ons per 90 and the 89th percentile for fills drawn per 90. Those underlying numbers do tell us quite a bit about the type of players Alizar is. And I remember, Bao, in your recent episode on Scouted Football, you were talking about players being filled persistently and how that is an insight into the type of player that they are how dangerous they are and how maybe the opposition is almost scared of, of that player to an extent and I think with, with Zalazar you do get that he's not the most consistent his end product I think does require some work but yeah he's still only what 23 and he is one of those players who yeah he really gets the crowd going he gives them something to get excited about a word two for 21 year old midfielder Tom Kraus who has started every league game for Schalke and was named February's Bundesliga Rookie of the Month. Now, he's on loan from Leipzig at the moment, but that deal will reportedly turn into a permanent move if Schalke do stay up this season. He's represented Germany at just about every youth level, up to and including the under-21s, and you can see that he has real potential. He does like to dictate play from deep, but his real qualities are found in the defensive side of his game. He's not scared to get stuck in in that regard sitting in the 99th percentile for tackles one and the 93rd percentile for ball recoveries compared to his positional peers across the top five leagues in Europe. So definitely one to watch out for over the next five leagues and actually in winning February's Bundesliga Rookie of the Month, he sought off competition from none other than Matthias Delicht. So yeah, esteemed company indeed for young Tom Kraus. Looking ahead, Schalke face fellow strugglers Hertha Berlin, Hoffenheim and Augsburg over the next month or so. They really need to be looking at seven points minimum, I think, from that run of fixtures to keep alive their hopes of playing top flight football because towards the end of the season, they do have a run of quite difficult encounters. They do come into that run of games against Hertha Berlin, Hoffenheim and Augsburg with some real momentum behind them at a time when the teams around them, most notably Hoffenheim and Stuttgart, really seem to be struggling to find form. For that reason, I think we do have to rate their chances of survival quite highly. Yeah, Let's see how they fare over the final 10 games of the season. Okay, we will draw our analysis of Schalke and German football to a close there. We are going to take a quick break. We're going to fill up our water bottles before coming back to look at the latest developments in Italy. We'll be right back. In Turin, whilst Juventus are clawing themselves back into European contention after their points deduction, Torino are also in the hunt following another season of steady progress under their boss, Ivan Juric. Having bounced back from derby defeat a fortnight ago with back-to-back victories over Bologna and Lecce, I Granata are now just five points adrift of Atalanta in sixth. Juric is a highly respected coach, both in and beyond Italy. But what have we learned from his stint at the Stadio Olimpico Grande Torino so far, Michael? 
Yeah, I think one of the main things we are learning is that a lot more people are taking note of Ivan Juric and the work he's doing. He's been admired for his work at Hellas Verona in Italy for a number of years with, in, with the stint he had there. And the two seasons he's had at Torino have been great as well. Really steady progress, like you said. They were a team that was 17th prior to him taking over. They finished just above the relegation zone, required a win on the last day, I believe that took them to stay up. And since then, he led them to 10th last season. And yeah, like you said, now they're in European contention. And they've got a bit of form about them as well. The really good bounce back after a derby defeat a couple of weeks ago. They were really competitive in the game, though. There was 2-2 after 70 minutes. Then Gleison Bremer, the star of last season for Torino, uh, who Juventus picked up for a lot of money, both scored and assisted. So, yeah, really miserable sort of ending to that derby but yeah since then they defeated Bologna and Lecce two teams who have had impressive 2023s I think it's safe to say albeit Lecce without Samuel and Titi who's been really good for them this year and he has proven time and time again his ability to build teams greater than the sums of the parts at the top level in Italy I think with Torino one of the players you may commonly associate with them over the last half a decade or so is Andrea Bellotti for most of his stint, I mean, Bellotti left last summer. He went to Roma on a free transfer. And during his last season, despite being the top scorer with eight league goals, he was injured and not even favoured at times by... <clears throat> he was not even favoured at times by Jurich during the season. But it's his ability as a manager to sort of work around that. And he's prepared brilliantly for this season. And, you know, aside from Bellotti, they lost Rolando Mandragora to Fiorentina and also Josip Brecolo, who returned to Wolfsburg after a really good loan. He's now also in Florence with Mandragora. And whilst Fiorentina's recruitment team hasn't exactly been about unearthing talents unbeknownst to Serie A, Torino's has been a bit more with some of their success stories, but also ones with redemption, which I'll come on to. But they've had great young players like Samuel Ricci. He came through... Empoli, we discussed them and their sort of scouting success a few weeks back. And Wilfred Singo, a really dynamic right wing back who plays sort of as a right wing back for Torino. And they're two exceptional young talents in the division. But yeah, there is this real element of redemption in their squad. And you look around the players and the star players of recent. And even though I said it's not a team sort of littered with star players, they still have their standout players who have been thriving in this team. Jan Caramoa, former French under 21 international. Broke free with Inter Milan. He then was relegated with Parma, was sent on loan to Turkey last season. And he's just scored two goals in his past two games. And he's starting to build confidence in a much more settled environment. Another one who maybe even more so is Tony Sanabria or Antonio Sanabria, who's been around even longer. I think he's 27 years old now. And he's had an okay career by all means. But for a player who was introduced from La Masia to Barcelona by Tito Villanova, at such a young age, I don't think his career had really taken off the way people thought it would. And he's also scored two and two. And he's also filled the boots and the responsibility of Andrea Bellotti really well, even if he hasn't got as many goals. His link-up play is one that's really developing. And then you can sort of go throughout the squad and you can see players who have maybe people would have thought at some point been destined for bigger things, but have really been redeeming themselves under the work of Jurich Perchers. A former Ajax centre-back who was sort of seen as one of the successors to Matthias De Ligt when he left. And Nikola Vlasic, who's had two failed stints in the Premier League. Alexei Miranchuk, who is on loan from Atalanta, who was one of the stars of the Russian, or Nas Russian national team, both for the Euros and the last World, uh, the 2018 World Cup. Nemanja Radonjic, a player you know well, Ali, from his time at Marseille. And Pietro Pellegrini, another player who didn't really find that much success in the league. And despite um, joining... Monaco at a really young age for a lot of money. Obviously, that might be the reason why. But all of whom seem to be finding a home. And I think that comes down to the great work that Jurich has done. I mean, on the off, he gets the comparisons to Jurgen Klopp because he described himself over 10 years ago as a, as a metalhead and said footballers don't know um, a rude language for poo about music. But there's been no coincidence when you look at the success stories we have on here and good managers that they have their clear relationships with successful managers during their career. I think those pathways is such a common trend. He played and coached under Gian Piero Gasparini at Genoa and then took his first job at Genoa. And then before he had a few stints in management, one of which we'll come on to in a bit. But 
before finding this home at Elas Verona and then Torino. And he's built this team playing a similar kind of formation to the traditional Gasparini Atalanta 3-4-2-1. Initially very aggressive. I think they led the foul starts for last season. This season, I'd say they've become a bit more refined. They are still up there. I think they're fifth on the, for the fouls committed. But in terms of the number of tackles and the distance covered, they're one of the lowest. I mean, they're the lowest for tackles in the attacking third, midfield third, and defensive third, incredibly, in Serie A this season. And I think a lot of that is the emphasis on Jorich's coaching, player positioning, and also knowing when to make those fouls, knowing when to bring down an opposition and game management, ultimately. So they have been extremely frustrating for big teams to play because he often gets a fine tune out of them. Juventus is one of the more noteworthy big teams that's been in recently, and they it really took them, they really took them to the wire in the derby. But yeah, more people are noticing Jorich. He's a great manager. He... He's a former Sevilla player. I wonder sort of if Sevilla will, at one point, their, their paths will cross again. I suspect they might. He was recently linked to Southampton as a Wolves fan. I was dreading the prospect of him taking over a team in that kind of position because it's such a it would seem such a well-suited role for him. But whether it's in Italy or not, I think this is a manager who's clearly destined for bigger things. And he's quite an interesting character as well. He's fallen out with directors, players, Redonius recently. But he's obviously got that man management and ability to repair those relationships whether it's him or the players clearly respecting him so yeah he ticks a lot of boxes another success story in Serie A this season has been Monza despite regularly catching the eye for their off-field antics understandable when you consider Silvio Berlusconi is their president the club from the city more famous for its Grand Prix has recovered exceptionally well from a dismal start to their top flight tenure. It's no secret they have gifted individuals, but there's more to their achievements than those and Berlusconi's infamous bonuses. Right, Michael? Yeah, absolutely. What a terrible start they had to the season as well. And Mm -hmm. you look at them from afar and they've caught the headlines in many ways for the wrong reasons. They were big splashes when they were in Serie B. They signed the likes of um, Kevin Prince-Boateng, Mario Balotelli, didn't achieve promotion with them, achieved it with a more modestly built team, still very expensive for the second tier and came up through the playoffs after missing out on the automatics of the last day of last season, but really struggled to adjust until they sat their manager and replaced him with Raffaele Palladino, a player, a man you might remember as a player for Juventus. He was part of the squad in the mid-noughties as a young player breakthrough, helped them actually come back from Serie B after the scandal. And then he played for a number of teams. He got three Italy appearances. And this is actually his first job in management. But my word, he has been absolutely sensational. He's led the team from adrift at the bottom of the top flight to challenging, pushing for mid-table at some point, being in the top 10, whilst implementing some really good attacking football, um, some really interesting formations and with a lot of noteworthy players. And despite antics still seeming to follow the side off the field, you know, you mentioned that scandal. We're not going to go into too much detail about that. I think many people who know anything about Monza will know about that. And obviously the much more saddening case of Pablo Mari, he was the centre of the terrorism incident late last year in Milan. But him, amongst others, have been sort of central to Palladino's reform. It's a really sort of slick, modern-looking Monza team. They also play a 3-4-2-1. And Palladino, you know, we talked about Jurich and his influences, Gasparini, in this current trend. Well, just to follow on from that, Palladino is almost like the third, the grandkid, the third generation. Palladino played under Gasparini for Genoa a number of years and then also played at Crotone under Ivan Juric in one of his first jobs. And of course, he also implements a 3-4-2-1 system. But his kind of management and implementation of it is quite different to Juric's in the sense that he is obsessed with rotation. Now, Monta have used 31 players this season, which seems like a lot, but in Italy, there's still miraculously been four more teams that have used more in the top flight this season. But they have been a breath of fresh air when you do watch them play. They've famously done the double over Juventus. They've got 
really good individual gifted players like you said in Matteo Pessina he was seen as maybe the replacement for Papi Gomez a few years ago Stefano Sensi who when Antonio Conte took over seemed to be the central star even ahead of Nico Barella at the time and they have got these players you know Berlusconi is still worth about seven billion euros he's one of the richest owners I think the richest individual owner in Italian football at the moment so the potential in where they can go is really high and yeah, Monza just keep picking up victories. They went through a great unbeaten run before the end of the year, up until mid-February when they suffered back-to-back defeats against AC Milan, a really damaging one against Salernitana when they lost 3-0, but they did have a man sent off. But since then, Palladino has shown that resilience and they've responded with impressive results, including wins over Empoli and Bologna, two teams we've been really um, complimentary of recently. And yeah, I think Palladino sort of as a manager is still a bit of an unknown. We know because he likes to sort of go both between overlapping wingbacks and underlapping wingbacks, that this is part of the reason why he likes to rotate his sides a lot. And one of the also re- really interesting things he does a lot more than a lot of managers I've seen is he will rotate players' positions. So Stefano Sensi, for example, could play at the base of that two in mid central midfield, or he could play just behind the striker. They also have Patrick Cura, who was a low lower league striker, he's been converted into a left wing back or an attacking forward. So there's great cases across there how he's sort of creating a very total football-esque system or with the influences of Gasparini and even Joric. But yeah, it seems like I've just been paying a testament to Gianpiero Gasparini the whole time. But I think what is important to sort of finish talking about Italian football on is we're really starting to see the signs of what the future of Italian football, future of Italian club football might start to look like. And people sort of cite back to the impacts Guardiola's had on both Spanish football, Premier League, Bundesliga to an extent, but maybe more so Jurgen Klopp and whatnot. And I think that we may be starting to see what a lot of teams in Italy will be sort of basing their ideologies off and what we may see going forward. And I think that's good because I think it's reflective of a more modern football, and maybe part of the reason we're already starting to see Italian teams doing better in Europe. Fascinating stuff, Michael, both on and off the field in Serie A. Okay, we are going to take a quick break. We're going to dial in friend of the pod, Luke Entwistle, all the way from Nice in the south coast of France. He is going to talk to us about all things AS Monaco. We'll be right back. In League Anne, we spoke last season of Monaco's pursuit of progress. Le Monegasque have enjoyed fluctuating levels of success over the last decade or so, spending the 2012-2013 campaign in the second tier of French football before being crowned League Anne champions in 2017 and reaching the semi-finals of the Champions League in the same season. And then just a couple of years later, they only narrowly avoided relegation back to League do. This time around, the Principality side find themselves in third place and well positioned to qualify for the Champions League. So against that backdrop, I'm delighted to be joined by Luke Entwistle to talk all things AS Monaco. Luke is, of course, the senior editor at Get French Football News and his work has appeared in publications such as The Guardian, Sky News and Monaco Life. Luke is also a regular on the excellent official league and podcast, Le Beau Jeu. Luke, it's great to have you on. How is the south coast of France treating you? Hi again. No, thanks very much for having me on. It's, uh, it's treating me very well, even at this time of the year. Uh, even, even when the weather's not at its peak, it's still lovely and sunny. And, uh, and with Monaco and Nice, plenty of football to keep me occupied. So it's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, good stuff. You seem to be keeping yourself busy. And, and as I always say, keeping yourself busy is the best way to keep yourself so yeah you are well positioned extremely well positioned to talk to his all things AS Monaco now ostensibly Philippe Clement appears to be doing a good job at the Stade Louis Du with the club appearing at least to have found some stability of sorts how would you evaluate Monaco's progress to date under Clement and looking ahead I suppose how would you assess the club's current direction of travel on and off the field of play, Luke? 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting that you use the word ostensibly, um, because I think when you look at things on the face of it, I think that you say that the trend in Monaco is very, very positive, yet there is this kind of undercurrent of dissatisfaction, not so much at the club, but certainly amongst the fan base who I think are readjusting to maybe a, a new role. Monaco has always been a very European club. I mean, it's not just the the semi-final side that included great players, obviously, such as Radamel Falcao and Kylian Mbappe a few years ago, but they have featured in a Champions League final uh, in this century as well. So, I mean, this is a club that very much identifies itself as a European club and sees itself as such. And within that context, things maybe aren't as great because, I mean, the last two seasons, they, they've lost in the play. They've finished third on, on, on the league and podium, which does get you a place in the playoffs to get into the Champions League. Unfortunately, they've fallen at that hurdle uh, on both occasions, both times, thanks to very, very late goals. One of them against Shakhtar Donetsk a couple of years ago as a extra time Ruben Aguilar on goal. So, you know, they've not been in that competition. It's a competition they do want to be in. That It is their objective every year to to feature in that competition. And they've not for the last couple of years. Uh, and then on top of that, you've got the kind of the European campaigns that they have had in the Europa League have been a bit underwhelming. Uh, last season, they finished top of their Europa League group, but didn't progress uh, after facing Braga, where it's, it's kind of they really kind of didn't turn up in that one. And, and then obviously against Bayer Leverkusen a lot more recently, um, where you can argue that Monaco were, were better for large periods, but ultimately didn't get the job done against the German side. So that is disappointing. Since since that game in mid-February, there has been a bit of a drop-off, but I think that ostensibly is, is, is an interesting use of word, uh, word to use, as I say. And, I think that there is an overall satisfaction with the Monaco project, especially given the fact that, and it's very vocalised this, is that they have these split objectives. So there is winning, uh, but there's also bringing through youth. And this is another thing that Monaco has always been known for and that is the bedrock of, of kind of the culture and of the project. Uh, and in that regard, uh, things are very, very positive. I mean, We'll speak about him a little bit later, but Elias Benzegir has come through this season. Every year, there's one or two players, big players, who come through and one or two years later are sold off for a huge profit. So within that context, I think that they're very much fulfilling that side of the objective. Uh, the difficulty, and it, it's always the case, and it's something that obviously Arsene Wenger touched on, uh, a legend of, of Monaco, but he said it during his time at Arsenal, that you know he, you have to find that balance of uh, playing the youth players, but without losing too many points because if you play those youth players over the course of the season you will lose points but it's about accepting that because a few years down the line you'll have a good player so it, it's a difficult trade-off it's a difficult balance that Monaco are trying to reach and I think that are they are kind of um, reaching it in a certain way but it, it, it's a difficult balance to strike and uh, ultimately, they they've just dropped off the podium uh, last weekend, and the trick now is to to just kind of produce a run of form after this blip to to see them over the line to get onto that podium again, and have another go at, at trying to get into the Champions League, maybe third time lucky. Yeah, absolutely. Look now, one young player in particular has caught the eye at the Stade Louis Du, and that is the 18-year-old attacking midfielder who you've just referenced, Elias Ben. Seguir, he's notched three goals and provided one assist across nine league and appearances this season. So I suppose the question that I want to put to you is, what are the hopes and expectations for Ben Seguir at Monaco over the next few years? Look. So yeah, Elias Ben Seguir is, is kind of Monaco's breakout star of the season. There's always one, uh, and this year it has been him, and he's been brilliant since breaking onto the scene. I mean, uh, I kind of uh, got a bit of a premiere of, of what he had to offer, I suppose. I, I watched him uh, at Old Trafford, actually, for the Monaco youth side earlier in, in November. Um, and then later against Leeds United, just after the World Cup break in a friendly where he's absolutely dominant on that night. It was great to see. Uh, he's got a great touch and, you know, really has a knack in really tight spaces of just somehow coming out with the ball. And, you know, he has... Uh, a lot of bravery you know he will try a trick in the box he will do something a little bit different uh, it often comes off to be honest but even if it doesn't it doesn't deter him from trying again so he's one of these players that and you know you have to be careful not to to overhype but I think that the expectation within Monaco will be for him to be the next 60 80 million euro player that leaves the club I mean that's that's a desire for all of their academy players they want to be bringing them through and want to be selling off, off for, for a very high price I mean 
Badiashir was the most recent one to, to do that, to move on. Um, he got slightly less on the market just because of his contract situation. He only had 18 months left, but 40 million euros for him. Too many, not an academy player, but one that they bought very young and developed. Uh, went to Real Madrid for, I think it's reported by RMC Sports in France, so it's about 100 million euros. So, you know, these are big value products that they've they've kind of developed and, and brought through. And Benzegui is the latest one, and I'm sure that they'll be wanting to keep hold of him for a couple of years because especially he's become very, very integral to the way in which they play. Um, and he's very much defined a, a change in Clement's system because prior is a 4-4-2 with Mbolo Benyeda playing in, in, in the striking roles. And instead, they've kind of reverted to this 4-2-3-1 with Ben Seguir in the number 10, uh, just because it gives the, the club a bit more of a, the, the side a bit more of a defensive stability. So that that is um, a role that he's really, really made his own. Uh, and he's become quite quickly, quite integral to the functioning of Clermont's side. So, yeah, the desire will be to keep him, um, of course, for this summer. I don't think there's any doubt that he will have another season, uh, maybe another one after that. But he's certainly one of those players that just really captures your attention straight away and that you, you can kind of tell is, is going to go on to do big things. So I suppose the thing for him is, is just kind of keep his head down a little bit, not not let all the attention get to him and, and just develop at his own pace. So... Yeah, very, very, very positive for him, and, and I'm sure he'll develop further this this year and uh, and into the next. Absolutely. Look, now, before we move on to our final question, I'm actually quite keen to hear from you with regards to how positive a figure you think Clément will be as Ben Seguir's coach when it comes to Ben Seguir's development over the next few years. Do you think that Clément will play a positive role in that development, Look. Yeah, so when Clement was brought in from Club Bruges, um, he was known as a manager who was very good at working with young players. He was known for his man management, not just of the experienced players and, and handling the dressing room, but also, uh, yeah, being very popular amongst young players and being able to bring them through um, and being a really good custodian of a project who, that will try to develop young players. So certainly have a positive influence. It's been interesting his management of him so far because in the opening press conferences, he did say how... You know, he wants to protect him a little bit and, and how, you know, you can't have super high expectations for him to perform at the level that we saw in his debut against Auxerre every single game. But what we, or what I, I should say, understood of that was that he'd maybe be taken out of the firing line a little bit. He'd maybe feature off the bench. Maybe he would miss a couple of games. You know, he, he wouldn't be as integral, but that hasn't come to pass. He's missed the last couple of games, but only through injury. So um, he's certainly just become extremely integral to the way that the team functions and, um, you know, that's just by virtue of, of how he's doing in, in training on a day to day basis and, and how he is performing in a match. And Clement has, has said on a few occasions, not just about Ben Seguir, but this applies to, to every player, is that I pick my team based on what I see in training. The age doesn't matter. If I think they deserve to start, then they will start. And that's, you know, the context within Ben Seguir, you know, the context within which Ben Seguir is thriving and, and in which he's become such an integral player. So, um, yeah, for, for Clermont, very, very good at handling young players, but ultimately he doesn't really look at the age. He knows that he has to bring through some young players, but for him, he's just become so integral that, you know, you have to play him. Absolutely. Look, and definitely a player for our listeners to, to watch out for over the next few months and indeed over the next few years. Now, you've spoken about the importance to the Monaco project, the culture at Monaco of bringing through Young players, we've spoken there about Ben Seguir and let's not forget that you, of course, wrote for The Guardian in January as well about Monaco's conveyor belt of talent. Now, beyond Ben Seguir, are there any other young players either in the academy or breaking into the first team at Monaco who look set to make their mark in the first team either this or next season, Look. Yeah, where to start? <laughs> it's always the case with Monaco, honestly. There's always so many coming through and I follow their, their youth side quite closely and, and enjoy doing so because there's some absolutely great players in there. I mean, my, my personal favourite is Sunguntu Magasa, who um, very close watchers of, of Ligue 1 will have seen at least on one occasion. Uh, he made his his debut against Rennes early in the season with a, a pretty dreadful contact. So I think it was um, Yusuf Fafana got sent off really, really early in that game. Uh, and he was brought on against Ren, you know, a Champions League challenging side. And he was brought on after about 15 minutes, the club down to 10 men. Uh, he was absolutely sensational as Monaco ended up getting a draw. So he's one to really keep an eye on. He's a, he's a proper number six. He 
uh, is brilliant defensively, uh, positionally great, you know, press resistance when they've got the ball. And he's just one of those kind of omnipresent figures, you know, wherever the ball is, that's where he also is. He just has this, this brilliant reading of the game that just allows him to always be in the right place at the right time. So he's my kind of number one to keep an eye on, but there's quite a few others. I mean, in the group elite, it's Magasa who plays alongside Koulibaly and Le Maréchal. Le Maréchal is currently on the breast, so he's getting some vital league and experience, but Koulibaly is another great one who, he is more of an eight, but he really has also kind of the characteristics to be a, a pretty good six. Um, but yeah, he, he's kind of becoming a more complete midfielder within their academy. And then you've got the Maréchal, who they, they formed a brilliant kind of three-man midfield for the for the youth side. And you kind of looked at it at the time and thought, well, that, that could be your Monaco ready-made midfield in, in three years' time. So that's kind of the midfield almost. Also. And then we've had a, another young player uh, whose surname we will recognise, uh, Eden Diop, uh, brother of Sofian, former Monaco player, who's obviously joined Nice in the summer. He's broken through as well, even though he's done so in a slightly in, like unconventional way, let's say. He's um, a very versatile player. Um, when I speak to people in the academy, they, they talk his intelligence and, and the way that he knows which runs to make and when to make them. Uh, more of a midfielder, but broke through at right back due to a bit of an injury crisis uh, and had to fill in, actually, even in the Europa League at right back and had a, a positive showing, almost won the tie against Bayer Leverkusen with a great finish in the last minute, but was ruled out because the ball had narrowly um, but prior to that goal. So he's another one to look out for. Um, and then you've got Lissandro Olmeta. Uh, lots of big clubs apparently looking at him, including Chelsea, Manchester City. He's a goalkeeper at France uh, youth level. So he's another one. Jan Diena is around the first team. So is Ilan Oku. Uh, Richie Valme is, is, is just signed a, a contract as well. Akliush has been around for ages, but, you know, will he quite pierce through and, and make it at that level? It remains to be seen, but he's, he's still, you know, a highly talented attacking midfielder. And you've got Elliot Matazo as well, and, and Babayi, who's a bit of a, a right back, a, a really kind of um, quite exciting wing back. So Matazo is one that we've also seen around for, for a couple of years and is becoming slightly more integral and, and uses a bit more of a rotation option. So there's plenty there. Um, whether all of them can break through is another thing. But if, if I was to pick out a couple, uh, I, I think I'd probably go for Magasa, Koulibaly and Diop as kind of the, the three big hopes for, for the Monaco Academy. Perfect. Look, a string of names to remember, shall we say. Yeah, exciting times at Monaco. And if they can perform better in Europe over the next few years, then yeah, definitely on track to, to get to where they want to get to. Look, it's been brilliant talking to you. Thank you so much for spending some of your evening with us. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me on and uh, keep up the good work at the podcast. Cheers. Thanks, Luke. Thanks, Luke. It's appreciated. Okay, dokie. Well, we will draw our analysis of all things Monaco to a close there. We're going to turn our attention to Spain now and we're going to dial Rudy Barlow back in. We'll be right back. Unai Emery has been doing a decent job at Aston Villa since returning to English football. But what of his former side via Real? They were ninth when Kiki Setien took over and find themselves seventh now. But there's little optimism in Castellon. Why is Setien still under pressure? And why is it you fear for his job security sooner or later, Barlow? Yeah, it's a good question. I think this Villarreal side are, I think I feel like we've been t- talking about it for about two, three years now domestically. Because even though Unai Emery has done very well in La- in Europe, obviously, semi-finals of the Champions League and winners of the Europa League with Villarreal, that kind of wipes out all of everything else. That's that's all consuming those kind of honors and everything that that does. But for three seasons now. This is a Villarreal side that we thought could challenge for the Champions League places based on the quality of their squad, based on the depth they have, looking at kind of the other contenders. And still, we just don't quite see it. And yeah, it was very frustrating. They, they drew one each with Real Betis at the weekend. That was their big opportunity. If they'd won that game, then they would have gone uh, within sort of like three, four points of uh, Real Sociedad, five points, sorry, of Real Sociedad and they would have uh, sort of levelled up with Real Betis or, or just behind them. 
as it stands, they're now four points off Betty, seven points off Lareal in fourth, and it looks just a little bit too far for them, especially when you consider that, okay, do they have the quality and could they put together a sort of long run of winning games? Yes, absolutely, but we've just not seen it for them, and you factor in the fact that they're probably going to remain in the Conference League, that makes things more difficult. They're they're sitting seventh now, they're seventh since the World Cup returned. And we, if we can kind of write off that kind of five, six games that Setien had at the start where things were going dramatically wrong on, on sort of all uh, surfaces, on all bases, uh, they're just still not quite clicking. They've won five, they've drawn two, they've lost four. They had that massive win over Real Madrid in the league. And that looks as if it was going to be the turning point. That looks as if we had a VRL side that was confident in what it was doing, that was brave, that was bold with the ball, had a nice balance between sort of the pragmatism between Emery and the and the sort of more kind of free flowing or, or certainly more ambitious with the ball set in. So yeah, but since then we've just seen inconsistency again and again, and they they were beaten by Elche, bottom team of the league, and. Rapid useless out it has to be said they've only won twice and and every now and then they come up with these games that really make you question just how much faith the players do have in Setien because there's just no way they should be losing to Elche. There's some of those points. There was one game recently enough where Manu Trigueros was sent off. I don't know if we discussed it on here, but Trigueros is kind of a, a mainstay of this weird outside. He's been there for years and years and years. He's one of the senior figures in the dressing room and he was sent off after about 20 minutes for kind of lashing out. And it was just such an indisciplined kind of piece of action that when he's doing things like that, that's when you kind of raise your eyebrow and you go, right, okay, what exactly is happening here? And they're they're seesawing between kind of good performances or promising bits. It should be said that they've been missing Gerard Moreno and he's absolutely massive. I think their win percentage drops by about, 40% 40% or so when he's not there, which gives you gives you an idea of just how crucial he is. And if, if listeners can cast their mind back to about two years ago when he was in the Ballon d'Or shortlist, when he was winning that Europa League, he was the player of the Europa League. That shows you just kind of what level he was at and just how important he is to his Fiat outside. But equally, I don't think that's an excuse for them not to be beating the likes of kind of Elche or, or even Mallorca, who, although they are good at home, you still expect... Villarreal to be doing better than a 4-2 loss, which which always looked kind of comfortable enough. They have lost Dan Juma as well. That's that's a blow. But but yeah, the ultimate feeling that I get from this is that perhaps there's not a full sense of unity behind Setien. I think there's been two occasions now where if Setien had not got the required results, then Fernando Roch, the, the chairman and president, would have considered sacking him. So if that's happened twice already, and it's it's kind of I always feel like when it's dependent on one result, if it's needs to get so and so amount of points from these games, you tend to be in trouble anyway. And so that makes me think that regardless of how Villarreal finish this season, unless they can make a run into the top four, unless they can put together sort of an outrageous kind of uh yeah, sort of sense of form in those last kind of 10 games. If they can win the Conference League, that will make a big difference too. But I think unless we do see something more from Setien, we do see something representing progress, representing a coming together of this Villarreal side that regardless of how it's done in Europe, has never quite put it together in La Liga, then I think we could see the Cantabrian on his way out of Castellon. And, uh, and yeah, great shame, I think, because... This Villarreal side, this was a big, big opportunity for them to make a run at the Champions League spots. And Setien, this was a big opportunity for him to kind of revindicate himself after a spell at Barcelona that wasn't actually disastrously bad. It just ended disastrously against Bayern Munich. And, and that was obviously sentenced him a historic night. But uh, but yeah, I think that obviously, as it would, colours his time quite quite a bit. But uh, yeah, I, uh, I hope Fieriel and Setien do put it together, but I, I have my doubts. Fascinating. Well, meanwhile, another former Barcelona coach isn't having the best time of it either. Keen listeners over recent years might have picked up that you're a fan of Ernesto Valverde, but there's no escaping the fact that his athletic club are on a dreadful run. 
like Villarreal, Athletic hold European aspirations and Valverde had a good start, but the pressure in Bilbao must be on the rise. Yeah, they're 17th since the World Cup. And no matter how bad your kind of goal-scoring issues are, I think that's that's very problematic. I mean, we've spoken about that ad nauseum, uh, but they've still got Nico Williams on seven goals, Oyan Sanset on eight, Berenguer, Iñaki Williams on six apiece, and then Guru Theta on five. They still don't have that strike. If you look at all of the teams that are above them, they all have at least one, if not two, players that are on in double figures. I think it's only Betis that don't. Um, and they do have kind of a variety of goal scorers, and Borja Iglesias is their main forward. So, yeah, the fact that they don't have any single player in double figures speaks to that that problem you saw against Barcelona at the weekend. They went down 1-0. They had a late goal ruled out, but they had sort of four or five very clear opportunities, and credit to Barcelona, they, they were heroic in their defending. But if they do have a striker, and regardless of... of what kind of happened and how unfortunate they may feel against a, a strong Barcelona defensively. If they had that sort of box predator, then they would have scored. They would have equalized. They may have even gone on to win that match. And so again, looking similarly to the Villarreal, you're, you're wondering exactly where this European challenge is going to come from. They are in the semifinals of the cup. They're a goal down to Osasuna in that semi-final as well. And if they can win the cup, then okay, everything's forgiven and and Valverde can be carried through the streets of Bilbao again. But but if they don't, I struggle to see exactly if maybe they get conference league football, which isn't a disastrous season for Athletic by any means, but that kind of growing frustration, that angst that there's no goal scorer, that there's a ceiling on this team until one arrives, that's going to really sort of, I think, devour this team ultimately. And no matter who you bring in manager-wise, because Marcelino Garcia-Toral and and Valverde are both as good of managers as they could hope to get, both brilliant managers in their own right. No matter who they bring in, until they find that goal scorer, until they produce that goal scorer from the family academy, there's a ceiling on their on their play and it's going to be difficult for them to, to make any progress. The one thing I would say that Valverde perhaps is due criticism and apologies if you can hear what appears to be a helicopter I don't think I'm being investigated for anything um, perhaps it's on its way to go find Juan Laporta um, more on that a different time but, um, but uh, yeah I think until if speaking back about Valverde the defence not quite as strong as it was last season under Marcelino I do think that's perhaps a consequence of him trying to be more attacking and solve those goal scoring issues but the combination of that with the lack of goal scoring still means that, yeah, that kind of uh, run of games since the World Cup, uh, since we returned to action, is really looking pretty damning for him. And it's it's time to get results. Valladolid, I think it's on Friday night against Valladolid, away from home. Big game, that. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully we do see them in the Europa Conference League. And I'm going to stick my neck out and say, I actually do like the competition, despite it not being everyone's preference. But finally... Oh, this episode comes out two days before El Clasico on Sunday night. It looks as if it might be decisive in the title race. So how are these two teams doing currently, Barlow? Yeah, Real Madrid, I mean, strange one. There's still doubts about them. They don't seem to have Karim Benzema. He still seems to be absent. Um, and OK, maybe he scores the odd goal here or there. or And he is still scoring goals. I mean, he's still up there in the goal scoring charts, but... This is not the Karim Benzema of last season. This is not the Ballon d'Or winner. And so you're sort of limiting yourselves there. And then you have that kind of those defensive issues, which they've tightened up a wee bit. They, I think they've got six clean sheets in their last nine in La Liga, which shows you domestically, at least they can kind of cope with uh, what's being thrown at them. But but there's also, they know that when they come up against sort of uh, a team with a bit of firepower, as they did against Espanyol the weekend, as they'll do against Barcelona, that they're probably not going to keep a clean sheet. They've not, the only consistency they've really had in defence has kind of been Rudiger and uh, and Militao. Neither of them look particularly on form. Carvajal, there's doubts about him. I think a lot of Real Madrid fans want him sold or moved on in the summer. And then there's Furlong Mendy, who's, who's been unfit and Nacho's come in and done a very good job. And yeah, not a lot of certainty about Real Madrid. So I think, Although they perhaps have the most differential player currently in Vinicius Jr., although 
we'll come on to why that's been not been a factor against Barcelona recently. They do just kind of lack something. There's something missing from them. And maybe they put that together in the Champions League because we know they're so capable of doing it. We saw that against Liverpool. But I, if you ask me to count the number of players that I think are really on form for Real Madrid, I'm not sure I'd get past one hand. So that kind of tells you that it's a side that are kind of still moving along, but it's a, it's more of a kind of locomotive diesel freight train um, motion than it is, it is, and it is a kind of bullet train across Japan. That's a very extended metaphor, isn't it? Anyhow, moving on to Barcelona, the reason that Vinicius hasn't been such a factor against them is because of Ronald Araujo, who's looking like one of the best defenders in the world. It has to be said. I mean, he is just sensational to watch, and uh, it's it's fun describing defenders like that because they are he's big and he's powerful and that physicality is a large part of what makes him so impressive. But you combine that with that Uruguayan gara and it just it really is fantastic to watch. It's it makes defending really really fun. And Barcelona have been living off that because uh, it's that eight goals conceded in all all league season in twenty five games, which is getting them to this league title if they can finish it off. Nine-point lead ahead of El Clasico. Even if they get that reduced to six points, I think they'll feel still confident that they can sort of see see out this title the way they've been defending. We're not discounting a mental lapse or a mental wobble because they've still got 12 games after El Clasico to to see this out. So, I mean, that's nearly a third of the season. I think, again, where that time kind of scale is really confusing for us and our sort of natural natural instinct our circadian rhythms of of the season but but yeah it's a Barcelona side that are just surviving essentially they get their goal I think it's 9-1 wins this season it's Ronald Araujo it's Jules Koundé Andres Christensen Marc-Andre Stegen, and Alejandro Balde those are the five that have been getting them through since the World Cup Lewandowski's fallen off a bit Dembele's been injured Pedri as soon as you take him out of sight he basically it detonates Barcelona's midfield play, even though I think De Jong and Gavi have been decent of late, it's it's still lacking without him. So yeah, it's a Barcelona side that lives off their defence and sort of being hard to beat, nitty and gritty. And it's a, a Real Madrid side that keeps the ball with kind of somewhat bland possession at times. And so we've really seen the, the rules inverted from recent seasons, but it'll be a fascinating classical because even though these teams have flaws and even though there's a lot on the line, so it should be tense and cagey in the opening minutes, there's so much on the line. Real Madrid have to go for it. So it should be a really fascinating clash. And I am of the opinion that Europa League is actually the best competition in Europe because uh, there's so many teams with flaws in them, but they do have a lot of good players and hence why it tends to be so entertaining. So I think El Clasico, there's teams with flaws and I think it's going to be entertaining. Beautiful stuff, as always, Barlow, and a perfect note on which to end this episode of The Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. Well, thank you very much, Rudy Barlow. Thank you very much, Michael Jones, and thank you to you, the listener. Hopefully you've learned a thing or two, or perhaps even three, from the previous hour or so of European football chat, hopefully nuanced European football chat. Yeah, Rudy Barlow, what are you going to do with the rest of your evening? Are you handing over any more phones? Maybe that's what the helicopter was for. Maybe that phone was, uh, yeah, something suspicious. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, we'll come on to El Caso Negreda at some point uh, in the future. But <laughs> but my evening consists of, I think I've got one or two articles that I want to write this evening and hopefully I'll watch some Champions League in between that. No Spanish sites involved. So Yeah, you can... You can just enjoy it, Barlow. You don't need yeah, to. Yeah, I don't have to take any notes. You don't have to take any notes. You don't need to worry about uh, yeah, <laughs> produ- producing a post-match report within within minutes <laughs> of the referee's final whistle. You can just, yeah, enjoy the ride, so to speak. Michael Jones, how are you going to spend the remainder of your evening? Probably just sad that, uh, yeah, post-Ali Madden Blues after our uh, rendezvous on Saturday, no doubt. Yeah, exactly. I'm just trying to think what's better rehab, either going swimming or watching Inter Milan versus Porto. It's a pretty boring first leg, so I might just tune in, check the score and see if it gets good towards the end. Yeah, you should probably go for a swim, Michael. I do enjoy a swim, although I'm not quite sure where my nearest swimming pool would be. I need to look into that. I do enjoy the, the feeling of the water as you yeah swim 
through the pool. That is just put yourself just, in the Clyde Alley. Uh, uh, <laughs> probably, probably not to be advised. I would say, yeah, do not try that at home, listeners. Uh, please don't. Uh, on that note, uh, Michael, you've just you've just distracted me there with thoughts of the swimming pool. I'd love to go to a pool now, or even just a sauna, a jacuzzi, anything would would do. But yeah, I'll uh, I'll have to settle for. Manchester City against RP Leipzig, which uh, should still be an enjoyable way to spend my evening. Okay, okay. On that note, I'll say thank you to both of you. I'll say thank you again to the listener, and I'll say good night. Until next time, goodbye. Mm-hmm.